First John chapter three. Uh, so if we can go there. First John chapter three. Um, again, just as a reminder, John's really old. He's he's looking back on the uh, on his history and the years with Jesus and the first church and and pulling all these things together and uh, the theme that runs through John both as the disciple Jesus loved, his, his own declaration of himself, uh, and um, through certainly his later writings is this, is this theme of love, um, not just loving God, but loving people, and that comes out clear uh, in the book of 1 John. Uh, if, if we just want to remind ourselves of the purpose uh, of his writing this letter, um, he says in John 1, 4, that his purpose in writing this is that our joy would be complete. Um, the second purpose in John 2, uh, 1, is that we don't sin. And, and John puts a high premium on us resisting temptation, resisting evil, resisting sin, and our own righteous living and moral life. Uh, the third purpose is he writes in John 2, 26, uh, that would we would remain in in Christ. And then the fourth purpose we're not going to get to till we get to chapter five, chapter five, verse 13, is that we would know that we have eternal life, um, that that would be set and certain, uh, that, that, that we wouldn't doubt that, that we wouldn't question that. Um, and it's, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that that's the final thing that John wants to remind people of because it's something that he was looking down the barrel of pretty quickly. He's in his later mid nineties, um, and he knows that he's going to, you know, that his time on earth is is very short. Uh, and and when you start having those types of realizations, um, you know, you go one or two ways: either boy, I sure hope. How do I make sure? Or I, I cannot wait for that. For that moment, and he was obviously of the camp. I can't wait for that moment. He wants to make sure that everybody knows that if you're in Christ, you have the certainty of eternal life. So he, you know, he does not want uh, his people to to, uh, to doubt that at all. Um, and as we said in, in the past weeks, that you know, this little old man would be brought into the Christian communities around the around the Ephesus area, um, and and the the great. Uh, excitement of uh, you know this this original apostle the one who walked with Jesus was going to speak and he'd walk into the room and everybody with you know rapt attention and and what was it he would say little children love one another and that would be it um and it's this this picture of this have you ever seen some I saw this in Billy Graham when Billy Prayed, I think it was after the 9-11 attacks uh, at the National Cathedral. And, and Billy was really, really old. And he, he got up to, if any of you saw that televised, he stood up and he walked gingerly to the podium and he spoke and he prayed. And I was watching that thinking, that's like one of those Old Testament prophets. Mm-hmm. That is, his body is so frail. But there's such a strength and a power about him. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he looks, he looks outwardly like, like a, a strong wind would blow him over. But, but what you see in him is something that a tempest couldn't move. Uh, and, and that's how I picture John at, at this point. He's really old. But there's a, a power and a strength in him that all the forces of nature cannot move. Uh, and so when he says, you know, things, it's reported, you know, they say as little children love one another, that's such a simplistic message, but it comes with such power and force that you know there's, there's a wealth behind it. And, and, and what we have behind it is what we read in, in 1 John. So 1 John chapter 3, one other thing uh, that I'm reminded of as I was going through 1 John Three, I was reminded of First John, one. Uh, so First John one verse three, and what John said in 
in chapter 1, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And, and as I'm looking at 1 John 3, when I read this, my mind goes back to the gospel of John when John was, was recording his experience with Jesus. And what he gives us in 1 John, especially 3 at the end of it, all he's doing is saying, I'm giving you what I saw and heard from Jesus. Now he'll say it in his own words, but it is so reminiscent of what is recorded in the Gospel of John from Jesus' own words. And he's just all he said, all I'm doing, I'm just giving you what I've seen and heard. And that is such a great lesson for those who would follow Jesus. I, I, the only thing I can give you is what I've seen and heard from him. It, it, if if I give you what I've, what, I, what I've seen and heard of my own life, it's going to be rubbish. If I, if I give you what I've seen and heard from Fox News or CNN or whatever, you know, especially because Tucker Carlson's not there anymore, I, I, it's going to be rubbish. Uh, and it's not worth giving. But what is worth giving is what I've seen and heard of Christ. Uh, and there's an assurance in that. One, that I don't got to come up with stuff on my own. And two, that that is sufficient. And however people respond to it, it's how they respond to it. But it's sufficient enough for me simply to give what I've seen and heard of Christ. For us, that means in his word. So, First uh, John chapter 3. Uh, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now, in the original text, there were no punctuation marks. Mine has an exclamation mark after that, right? Um, and, and, and then it says, and that is what we are. The reason the, uh, the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason why there's two punctuation marks there is this. Because of the words that, that John uses, he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God, and that's what we are. When he says how great is the love, what he's saying, what what's being, he's communicating is this love that we've received from Jesus, from from the Father, is of a different world. He said this this is not a natural thing that we've experienced. It literally means it is from a different country. Like the love that the Father has lavished upon us is of a different sort and a different kind. We cannot come up with anything that mimics it, that explains it, that can replicate it. It is of a different country and a different kind. This love that God has. And that's why it's an exclamation mark. It is, this is wholly and completely different than any. So think of the best you've ever been loved in this world. It's probably from your dog, but you know, it, it, like the best you've been loved. This love is of a totally superior kind. Not only that, how great is the father love. It's from a different country that he has lavished on us. That word lavished means it is saturated us purely for our benefit. It's give, it, 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 is, it is poured out and saturated. Think about standing under the Niagara Falls. A complete deluge of love that, that, that is purely for our benefit. Now, now, God is love. This is just who he is. It's not just what he does. This is what he is. And it is so... Um, it's so profoundly of a different nature and caliber, and it is given to us simply for our benefit. It's just, and so that's why there's these exclamation marks. He said, he said I don't know how to communicate this to you because I think you think you know what love is. You have no idea. It's of a different world, and it's purely for your benefit. So why would you live without the benefit of the experience of the love of God? He says, how he's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Um, and that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. 
And he, he's saying, he's saying our, it's not that we hope that we're children of God. We are children of God. And he's going to get to this as the, as the fourth point of his message. Because you are his child, you will never be separated by him. Thereby you have eternal life. Uh, dear friends, now we, are, uh, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. He says, now that we're children of God, what we will be has not yet been made known. So he's saying, now he's lavished this love on you. He's made you a part of his child, and you are still becoming. You are not who you will be. You are, you're still in the process you ever seen a little bump sticker? Be patient with me. God isn't, you know, be patient. God isn't fish with me yet. Yeah, that's it's pretty biblical. But we have glimpses of who we will be. And if you go to Romans 8, 29 and 30, Romans 8, 29 and 30 gives us a glimpse uh, of who we will be. And uh, that says, let me turn to it right now. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Um for those God, let me see, where, is it, where am I? Yeah. Um, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, and so, like, we get glimpses of who we will become, but we're not there yet. Um, and so... What we know is that we will become the likeness of his son and, and he will move us through these stages of, of, of calling, of justification, of glorification. But we don't experience, we're justified now. We will go through a period of, of sanctification, but we won't be glorified till we get to heaven. So it's coming. It's coming. Um, and it's coming because we're children of God. Now, we know that when he appears... We shall be like him and see him as he is. Uh, everyone who has this open in purifies himself just as he is pure. So one of the things that was a, a core tenet in first century church was the second coming of Christ. And they believed it could be any moment. And so it was always at the, at, at the tip of their teaching, at the tip of their... It was, they were waiting in expectation. Now, we're getting, we're getting through the first century. Now, he had not come back yet. Uh, but this is an OG disciple, right? Like he's an original gangster. And so he, he's still, this is still a prominent teaching in him. And he says, we know that when he appears, because he is appearing, he's coming. Don't, John doesn't let that tenet of the Christian faith slip. He's coming. And when he comes, we will, it will be like him because we'll see him. And then he says this, everyone who has this hope, which hope? Of him coming back. So everybody who has the hope in him coming back does what? Purifies himself. So he says, look, if you've been adopted by him and he's lavished this love on you and you have this hope of his coming, purify yourself. It's not just that God has forgiven sin and made us right with him through the death burial, resurrection of Christ. He says, that's God's work. But now you have a work to go through your own practice of purifying your own life. And if you have the hope of Jesus coming back, you will go through that work. Because everyone who has that hope goes through the work of getting their life pure. Through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but there's work that we have to do. It, that word purifies means morally clean. If there's, if, there's one, if there's one thing that is slipping as each generation goes by is even the belief in morality, let alone the practice of it. Go to 2 Corinthians 7.1. 2 Corinthians 7.1. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, dear friends... Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness 
out of reverence for God. The, these verses don't get preached a whole bunch. Maybe I need to, mm-hmm. maybe I need to do some, some of that. 1 Timothy 5.22. In, in Paul's instructions to this young apprentice... Um, the, the last three words of that verse, keep yourself pure. Pretty simple instruction. James 4, 8. James 4, 8 says... Come near to God... And he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so all John is doing is drawing on the instruction of Christ and the teaching of the gospel that has been repeated over and over and over and over and over. We are cleansed positionally by Jesus' death and shedding of his blood. And we're purified continually by our choice to keep ourselves pure and free from sin. Does that make sense? Uh, And he says, if you have this hope of Jesus coming back, you will go through this work. And it's not about us being perfect. I I don't want to lay false guilt on us. But it is about... The prayer, Holy Spirit, if there's something in me I need to be convicted of, convict me. I give you permission to convict me so that I can repent. And I want to live with all the fullness of your grace in repentance. I don't want my, my ignorance of sin and sin living in my life to keep me from all that you have for me to, to, to experience. So I give you permission to convict me. And when you convict me, I'll repent. Give me all that your grace will allow me. Uh, and, and, and it's also so that living in this, in this, with this pliability that we don't mind being corrected, not just from the Holy Spirit, but from each other. The Bible says when you see someone who is, who's caught themselves in a sin, go and warn them, like speak the truth and love to them. Look, this isn't smart. This isn't wise. You know. You know you're slipping. And it, and it, it says when someone does that, receive that. You know, and, and, and that, so that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, you know, getting to the point where I'm, I'm per- but we're talking about living in this state of perpetual confession and repentance and, and making sure that when something's brought to us, okay, I get it. I, I get it. And he says, those who are looking forward to Jesus' second coming are going to live in this, with this attitude. Verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You know, I need to read, I need to read uh, uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, because this all fits together. Um, and, and, and from verses 4 through 10, really, John is going back to, remember there were, there were three tests that he gave us in chapter 2 to know if someone's really a Christian. The moral test, the doctrinal test, and the... I don't know, there's another test. Uh, and so he's going back to the second of that test, uh, the moral test. Or the first or the first test, uh, the moral test. And he talks about that one in John, uh, John 2, verses 3, 4, 5, 6. And so he's, he's going to get back to that test. Uh, if you want to know who's, who's, who's living a Christian life... I'm going to give you three tests, um, and it's the it's the moral test of obedience, um, it's the uh, the social test of love, and the doctrinal test of error. And, and so, anyway, he's going to get back to that test of uh, the moral test um, of obedience and righteousness in four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But let me just read this little section. Start in verse four. Everybody, everyone who breaks, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he may take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him can, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 
Dear children, there is, he's, he's the old man, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And so what he's doing here is he's given us this little template of, 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 of ourselves and of sin. And verse 8, or sorry, verse 4 correlates with verse 8. And verse 4 he says, everyone who sins, and so he says there's a condition of man. And the condition of man is what? Sin. Okay. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now look at verse 8. He who does what is sinful. And so he's restating. Guess what? We are the he who's. Okay. So this is our condition. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. And so he talks about the 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 bearers of sin, which is us. And then he talks about the origin of sin, which is the devil. Okay. And there's a great definition of what sin is in verse four. Sin is what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Sin is, is, is going against the law of God. And so anytime we think that, you know, this is a little one, it's not that big a deal. Um, I'm not going to, you know, change how I think or how I behave. It is what it is. And I got forgiveness. That's lawlessness, right? It's breaking the, breaking God's law. And, and, and John is saying here that is, let's not, let's not, it, it, you know, when I sin, I didn't make a mistake. When I sin, I didn't, you know, it's not, it's not that I was just completely ignorant. It's not like, oh, my bad. It's law breaking. That's what it is. I'm living as a lawbreaker, and that's sin. And the original, the, or the, 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 the origin of sin is the devil. So when I am living as a lawbreaker, I am living in the likeness of the devil. Does that make sense? And, and he says, that's so incompatible with who you are. Right? Like, he doesn't pull punches with sin. Verse 5. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And then you go down to verse, uh, to verse 8 again. The reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the devil's work. And, and so he, he's saying, look, the, the reason why Jesus came was to take away our sins and destroy the work of the devil. So what's the work of the devil? Well, the devil's work is morally to cause us to sin, physically to cause us disease, and intellectually to cause us error. And, and the work of the devil, in, 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 when we become lawbreakers, it leads us to moral sin, physical death, and, and intellectual and doctrinal error. That's the work of the devil. And Jesus, the work of Jesus what was the opposite of that? He came to save us from all those things. And then he says in verse 6, No one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And that, that follows with what he says. He reiterates that in verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. He's saying the originator of sin is the devil. That's who he is. And who he is is the breaker of God's law. And when we live in sin, we're living in the shadow and the, repeti- in, in, in the, in the repetition of the devil. Let's make no bones about it. And he says that's so incompatible with why Jesus came. Jesus came to destroy all that work of the devil. So, if you continue to do what is sinful, you're of the devil. That's what he's saying. And he's saying those who are in Christ are born of God. They cannot go on sinning because they have a different nature. 
Now, here's what he means when he talks about sinning. He's not talking about when we sin. Okay, What he's talking about is a habitual, continual, unrepentant life. Okay, He's not talking about when we fly off the handle. He's not talking about when we willingly sin. And break. He's talking about the life that lives in a state of sin that continues to be unrepentant of it. makes a practice of sin. Yep, yep. The habitual lifestyle of sin. And and this is why it gets pretty simple to know those who are born of God and who aren't. Because those who say, um, when it's clear in Scripture what sin is, continue to live in that lifestyle and not call it sin and not repent, it's pretty obvious they've not been born of the seed of God. And so I I want to be clear. Um, We're not talking about here when we all miss the mark. That's that's not what we're talking about here. Because hopefully you miss the mark, you realize it, Holy Spirit convicts you, you repent, and then you do it again the next day. And then the Holy Spirit (laughs) convicts you. And you repent, uh, and you get a little bit better and more mature, and you wait two days. And then that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is this habitual lifestyle where I am completely unrepentant, um, and I do not allow conviction ever to fall. It's the choice to sin. It's the, no, it's the, we all have the choice to sin. First Corinthians 10, First Corinthians 10, 13 says, says that it's all of our choice to sin. He's given us a way out. It's the habitual, perpetual choice to live in sin without repentance. Um, and, so, and so that's what he's saying. It's like you cannot habitually live in a state of sin and be born of God. Because you've been made new. This incredible love that's from a different world, a different country, has so saturated your life, and you're living in the expectation of him coming back. How can you live in a perpetual state of disobedience? And, and I think what he's, one of the things that we can glean from this is, if that's our story, we need to repent and accept him. Probably really for the first time. In verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Don't you love it how old people just say it like it is? <laughs> like they're super, they, I mean, John, he's got, he's got nothing to prove and no one to impress, right? Like he's like, whatever. Um. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. But that'd be a good message to preach one Sunday, huh? Stand up in church. How you know the children of the devil are? (laughs) Anyone who does not do what is right is not children of God, nor anyone who does not love his brother. John is, John is, is correcting two errors in this letter. The first error is in chapter one, and it has to do with this, this um, Gnostic belief that, that they have special knowledge that has made them perfect, so there's no sin in them. That's the first error. The second error he deals with here is that um, sin can't really affect them. Like, they're above it. Um, and he's saying, no, both those errors are wrong. There's no special knowledge that makes you perfected, and sin can still get you. And the way you know that you're of, of God is that you do what he says and you love your brother and sister in Christ. Um, and so now he talks about that very love. This is the message you heard from the beginning. You should love one another. Remember how he, he, he talked in, in chapter 2, verse 7, uh, when he said, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard, right? And that's what he's saying again here. This message you heard is from the beginning, love one another. And then right after that, he says, yet I am writing you a new command. um, And his truth is seen in him and you. 
And he's saying, no, but it, it's an old command, love, but it's, it's in a whole brand new way. Love the way Jesus loved. And, and, and that's what he's saying here. This, this, this message that you heard from the beginning, love one another. And then he goes off on this little, this little tangent there. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Here's what it is. Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Uh, and, and what he's saying here in verses 13, 12 and 13, our haters are going to hate. So just let them hate. Haters are going to hate. Um, let them, because that's their nature. He said their nature is of the evil one. And the evil one hates. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Just, I don't know why Christians get so worked up about how badly we're treated. Like the, the world's going to hate us if we're doing it right. The world's going to hate us. Um, and, and, and I want you to notice, don't be surprised, my brothers, when the world hates you. Who's he talking to? Christians. The hatred of the world is going to be aimed at Christians and the things of God. It is no surprise. I'm telling you, it's just going to get worse. Every law, every move of culture, every progression in the progressive movement is going to be at, at the heart of it geared against the Christ follower and the Judeo-Christian value of Scripture. That, don't be surprised if the world hates you, Christians, and the things of God. Don't let it shock you. And we're not going to legislate. We're not going to legislate morality. Uh, and by the way, morality isn't Christianity. Let's just be clear about that. There are a lot of moral heathens. Uh, and, and, and we're not going to legislate Christianity. We're not going to legislate heaven. It's just, this is just the way it goes, and it has to go this way, unfortunately. And, and so we are the salt and the light in the midst of a very tasteless and dark world, right? That's our job. This was, this was Christ's job. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This, what he's doing here is he's setting up in, 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 he's saying, you are contrary to the evil world because the evil world hates. And you're not of the evil world. So the evil world hates, we love. It, th this is Michelle Obama's Christian statement. We're going to Christianize her, her statement. When they go low, we go high. That was Hillary. Oh, that was Hillary? <laughs> <laughs> Cut from the same cloth, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I thought it was Michelle. <laughs> well, yeah, was maybe it was Hillary. Oh, when she was running against, against Trump? Yeah. Was it? Well, thank you. You can be the new Tucker Carlson. <laughs> I just remember that. Yeah, well, I, I doubt she meant it in a Christian way, but we're going to Christianize Hillary. Um, and uh, so, so, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the, the evil world is of, a, uh, is of a, a certain cloth, and they hate. You're not of that cloth. You love. Um, I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, right? These three remain faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. love. This is who we are. And because we've experienced this love that has been out of this world from a different country, we ought to know how to do this pretty well. Um, whether we do it or not, different issue. Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So, so here's the thing. Love for each other is the evidence of life. So hatred, malice, slander, uh, grudges is the evidence of death. That's what John's saying, right? Now, we know that no murderer has eternal life in him. I wish there were an asterisk there uh, because 
Um, and John knew this, the truth of Luke 23, 34. Luke 23, 34, Jesus is on the cross. And he's looking at those who carried out the crucifixion as Father, forgive them. They're just stupid. Right? So, so even people who don't get it right, let's not forget there's this thing called forgiveness when we repent and a whole bunch of mercy and grace. And I'm thankful for that. Right? I want to get down to verse 24. So let me pick up the pace here a little bit. Uh, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we have to lay, our, uh, lay down our lives for our brothers. A couple things. One, when the New Testament talks about love for people, it's primarily talking about love for Christ followers. We ought to treat each other, we ought to treat everybody with love, but we ought to treat each other better than what we treat everybody else with love. I mean, there's a special call, especially to those who are in the family of faith. And I don't think that gets enough publicity. I think we're so focused on loving those outside the world, we're forgetting that we have a special obligation to those inside the church. And, and so he says, this is how you know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So the essence of love is self-sacrifice. That's what he's saying. The essence of love is self-sacrifice. And that's why he says, you can't tell someone that is of your tribe, I know you're hungry, be warm and well fed and go on your way if you've got some food to help them. You can't do that. Because saying you'll pray from someone when you've got the resources to help them is not self-sacrificial love. Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. Uh, and then he says, verse 17, if anyone has, this is what he says right here. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? When, like, when we sit around the table together and church together and we know someone has need and we have the opportunity to do something, then the church ought to, as much as it can, do something. And he's talking about people in, in the body. And so... And so, so think about it like this. He, he's talked about what, what, what the devil is and the work of the devil and hate. Hate is activity against someone. Love is activity for someone. That's what he's saying. Love isn't a warm feeling towards someone. Love is actual activity towards them. Um, yes, it is a verb. Dear children, verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts uh, at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. So what he's saying is that, is that proof that we are in God is, is, is when we love each other. And what love means is that when I give what I value for another's benefit, that's love. When I give what I value for another's benefit, that's self-sacrificial love. He said, and, and that's how you know that you're in Christ. When, when, you, when, when, when your move is on another's behalf. And it's interesting that he says, this is how we quiet our hearts whenever our hearts condemn us. Because we've all had those moments when our hearts condemn us. <laughs> And we feel like I don't, I don't know if I'm good enough. Don't know if I'm going to make it. Maybe if I get into heaven, I'm going to be in back 40. Maybe, you know, God has some love for me, but a lot of love for others. And, you know, all this, all this self-condemnation. And he said, I want you to quiet your hearts. He gives us a great way to assess our own lives uh, and our relationship with God by how we relate to other people. And he says, God's greater than your heart. He knows everything. So don't let your heart talk you out of faith. Don't let your heart talk you out of God's love. It's a set thing. It's a settled issue. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Um, the, the, he's presenting us a picture of, of someone who stands before the father and the judge, um, not as one who stands as guilty, but rather as 
a son standing before a loving father. Um, we have confidence before God that we don't have to stand before him as the judge who's ready to lower the handle, hammer. We can stand before him as a, as a child standing before a loving, a loving father. Um, and we can have confidence that anything we ask will receive because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Verse 23, and this is his command to believe in his name or believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. It's, it, he, 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 he draws on what Jesus said as recorded for us in Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40. He said, this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. He draws on what Jesus said in Matthew 22, which are, which are the two greatest commands? Well, the first one is love the Lord your God with all our hearts and mind and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. Mm-hmm. See, when I read this, all I see is him. Look, all I can do is say what I've seen and heard. And I saw Jesus say one time when he was asked what the greatest command is, to love God and love people. All I can do is tell you that. This, this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love others as he commanded us. He just, this is why I started with that in the beginning. All I, all I can do to tell you is, is what I've seen and heard, and this is what I've seen and heard. Right? Mm-hmm. This is what I want to get to, verse 24. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. I want you to go to John 15. John 15, verses uh, 1 through 8. And again, all John is doing is saying, I'm just going to tell you what I saw and heard. John 15, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Those who obey his command live in him and he in them. That's what, that's what he says as an old man in, in, in 1 John 3, 24. Those who obey his command live in him and he in them. Why would he say that? Because he heard Jesus say this. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my word remains, my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. All John is saying is, I remember what Jesus said about remaining in him. And this is how, this, was, this is, remain in him and he will remain in you. Let me just unpack John 15 very quickly. I don't want to give you everything in there because I still got to preach on this and I still want you to be a little bit surprised. <laughs> <clears throat> on the temple where Jesus was spoke in front of, There was a large golden vine that was a prominent decoration at the front of the temple. And the idea of that is the the Jews would look at that and they would associate it that Israel is God's vine. And so that's why Jesus says, I am the... I'm the true vine. It's not Israel. Don't think that just because you are a Jew, it's me. So that's why he says, I am the true vine. Now watch what he says. And my father is the gardener or the vine dresser. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. That sounds pretty brutal, right? If, if, if any Christian hears that, I guarantee you in the back of their mind, they're thinking, okay, wait, wait, no, I bore fruit one time. I'm not going to be cut off. You know, let me give you a different understanding of that. 
just as likely, this is, it's the Greek word for that, rather than cut off as in severed, it literally means lifts up. And back in these days, the, the vines, they weren't trellised like they are around the valley. A lot of them were propped up on rocks, on, on, on pieces of wood, and they grew on the ground. And some of the leaves got so trampled and so dirty that the vine dresser, this word cuts off, literally means lifts up, cleans up so they can absorb more light, so they can produce more fruit, not cut off and destroyed. And, and, and so he, cuts, he, he cleans off because they just got too dirty. This reminds me of his words to Peter. When Peter says, oh, you want to wash my feet? Unless I wash your feet, Peter, you got no part of me. Oh, then wash my whole body. He's like, I don't got to wash your whole body. You're already clean, but your feet are dirty. Sometimes our feet get really, really dirty. And God needs to clean us off, lift us up, get us in the light again so we can get the nutrients because we roll around in the mud too long. He cuts off so every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so it's even more fruitful. Okay, so, so, so Jesus is not the, the tender of the, of the vine. He, Jesus is the vine. There's a, there's a rancher walking around, pruning. And the rancher walking around pruning is God the Father. And he says, every branch that bears fruit... Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to prune it. How fun is pruning? <laughs> See, we would think that the gardener would prune those who don't bear fruit, so they will. He says, when you're bearing fruit, I'm going to prune you so that you'll bear more fruit. That word prune means literally to purge or cleanse from those things that are worthless. Because as much fruit as we may bear, there's still things in our lives that are worthless. Kingdom worthless. And he says, I still need to do some of that in you. So don't think when I prune you, I'm upset. You're doing great. But there's still some chaff inside that I need to clean out. You are already clean because of the what? The word. The word. Th this is why scripture in our lives regularly is so important. Scripture does four things. It convicts us of sin. It inspires holiness. It promotes growth and it's our power for victory. And, and he says, I, I, I've spoken my word to you and my word is working this in you. It should be convicting you of sin. It should be inspiring you to holiness. It should be promoting growth in you. And it is the only way you're going to be victorious in this world. That's why Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by everywhere that comes from the mouth of God. And then he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Look, just let that sink in. It, two things, because this gets back to what John said in John chapter 3. Remain in me and I will remain in you. One, understand, to remain means this, to make daily decisions to open yourself up to Christ and to stay in connection to him. To make daily decisions, moment by moment by moment decisions that open yourself up to Christ and keep yourself connected to him. Make daily decisions, moment by moment by moment decisions. To open yourself up to Christ and to stick, that keeps you in connection with him. Daily decisions. What am I going to watch? What am I going to read? What am I going to listen to? How am I going to respond? Daily decisions. That's what it means to remain in him. It doesn't mean get, you know, accept Jesus and then go about your life and you know, go to church. Like daily decisions, moment by moment decisions. To open yourself up to Christ and just whatever, whatever keeps you in connection to Jesus, do that. And whatever is nebulous, neutral, or anti, don't do that. Remain in me. But here's the other thing that's so powerful about this, and this is what John was getting to. The onus is not just on us to remain in Christ. The onus is on Christ to remain in us. 
He doesn't get to walk out on us when we screw the pooch. Like, like he doesn't get to walk out on us when we fail, when we get muddied up. He doesn't get to say, I got someone better over there. I think I'm going to go pay attention to them. He has the onus to remain in us. And because he remains in us, we can have the power and potential to remain in him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not like it's like, oh my gosh, I got, this is so hard. I got to remain in him. It's so hard right now. Like it's on him to remain. If he doesn't remain in us, we got no hope of remaining in him. Right? And so every day we can have this assurance that it's not... It's not the drudgery for me to remain in him. It's the promise that he is remaining in me. Like I walk around with him in me 24-7. And because of that, I want to open my, I want to make the decisions that keep me in connection with him. He is so committed to me. And I know that because he's lavished this otherworldly love on me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I'm going to do in John 15 because I've got to preach a message. So... Um, uh, so anyway, it, like, and, and that's how John ends chapter 3. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Um, the condition of continual abiding in him is seen in obedience to our belief in Jesus, obedience in our love for others, and our obedience to moral righteousness. And when when we are obedient, that's what he keeps coming back to, when we're obedient to belief in Jesus, love for others, and moral righteousness, that's what keeps us making those daily moment-by-moment decisions that keep us connected to him and abiding in him because he has abided in us. Um, so that's chapter three. He's a pretty good God. And he loves us lavishly. And his charge to us is to abide in his son. Because his son has chosen to abide in us.